Okay, everybody, bring it in. We are back. Another episode here of the read option took a little bit of a hiatus i know we've done that a few times and uh, our apologies to all of our listeners we really do appreciate you uh, you know the pod is a lot of work it takes a lot of time and, and energy and with the holiday weekend and with some scheduling stuff we weren't able to get another pod out last week but we're gonna have two out this week me and scotty are gonna be ripping for one ready for you on friday we're gonna record thursday night so got a bunch of stuff to talk about uh, including and not limited to the NBA playoffs. And that's going to be primarily what we talk about here uh, on this podcast. But look, there's a lot going on right now. Um, there's, you know, we got the French Open, baseball's in full swing with some teams now out of the postseason and with the majority of the league done playing in the NBA. We're actually starting to see some front office changing, including some breaking news that came out this morning on Wednesday uh, about the Boston Celtics. And we'll get to that in a second. But I, I want to start off. By talking about something that has kind of dominated the the news cycle, which has been Naomi Osaka's withdrawal uh, and comments about not doing media uh, at the French Open. And this is a really, really tough subject to talk about because I'm a massive supporter of mental health. It is a really, really important part of life. You know, making sure your your brain is functioning in a way that can best help you succeed in life while also balancing your emotions and the stress levels and everything that goes on in the world. And on a lot of levels, I completely support Naomi Osaka, right? The emphasis on mental health is incredibly perform important. And when she first made her comments, you know, she got a lot of backlash, there's a lot of people out there who will say, oh, you make millions of dollars. You know, what are you complaining about? And I, that to me is frustrating because just because someone makes a lot of money doesn't mean that they can just deal with bullshit. Doesn't mean that they're not people, right? Like I say this all the time. Athletes are the closest thing we have in the world to superheroes. And we put them in this infallible light where it's like just because they make a lot of money People can say and do whatever they want. And we've seen it in the NBA this week, right? With Russell Westbrook getting popcorn dumped on him as he's walking out of off the court with a with a potentially sprained ankle. You know, we saw it again in the Wizards Sixer series with an asshole running onto the court the other night. We saw it with a fan spitting on Trey Young. We saw it in the despicable things that were said to John Morant's parents in Utah. There is something about the way that we view athletes where it's almost as if they're not people. And it's important to always remember that they are. That being said, there are certain responsibilities that come with being a world famous athlete. And it's not just because they make a lot of money, but it's because media plays a massive role in the popularity of sports. Now, I believe that there's a lot that we can do in the media to bridge the gap right to make someone like Naomi Osaka who came out and talked about being very introverted you know people often forget I'm sure many of you listening will remember and some of you will not but when she won her first major the U.S. Open in 2018 she beat Serena Williams in the final and she was a relatively unknown player on on the tour in women's tennis and Serena in my opinion acted 
pretty childish throughout that entire situation. And she completely stole the spotlight from this young woman who just beat her idol in Serena Williams. And Serena really couldn't handle it. And her championship, her first ever major, went from being about Naomi Osaka and the brilliance that she was showing on the court to about Serena Williams. And it put her in a really uncomfortable situation. She literally burst into tears while getting her trophy. And Serena, like, tried to hug her and, and tell her. And, like, Serena put her in that situation. And so she talked about, since winning that title and winning the U.S. Open, how difficult it's been ever since. She, she's talked about how hard she's had to work on her mental health, how much it affects her. And she doesn't understand why we need to do post-match press conferences. And again, I'm not insensitive to the importance of mental health. I am an advocate for it. I've gone to therapy. I've struggled with mental health issues myself. It's something that a lot of people face and is now a days only become more and more vocalized because of people like Naomi Osaka or Kevin Love. You know, we've seen it across sports, people openly talking about, you know, their mental health. And, and look, everyone's different, right? Naomi Osaka is an introverted person. Some people are extroverts. Some are introverts. Some have boundless social energy. And, and other people, they can only expel so much before it just becomes too overwhelming. And the anxiety and the stress of talking to people starts to creep in. And I look at this case, and as much as I want to say, you know what, Naomi, you're 100% right. No post-match meetings for you. It's entirely up to you. Don't worry about it. I don't think that's good. I, I don't think that's good for sports. It's important for players to have access, for your fans to see you when you win and when you lose. And for an introverted person, it's not like, okay, I lost. I don't want to do media, but I'll do media when I win. You know, and that they're excited to. It's, they don't enjoy it either way. So while I do genuinely understand her point, I do think that there is a certain level of, you got to kind of go through it, you know, and, and I don't like comparing what athletes go through in their jobs to what everyday people go through. But, you know, we, we do all have parts of our jobs that suck sometimes. And the difference being is that our jobs and the shitty parts of our jobs don't get displayed, you know, globally. But it's important for her fans and for her followers and for the growth of women's sports that people do have access to them. You know, if there is no media covering them, they wouldn't be making a ton of money. You know, they would be playing the sport for the love of the sport, which would be great. But you have to take the highs with the lows. If you're going to do endorsement deals, you also have to do a little bit of media. And that's why I feel like there, there's a middle ground here. The, the media in tennis has notoriously been pretty shitty for a long time. They don't do a great job of asking different questions. They take way too long of, a, of the players' times. Uh, we've seen Serena storm out of press conferences time after time. It, it's something that happens a lot. And so I think there's a middle ground, whether it's, you know, a cap of five minutes. You, know, you get five minutes or a select five reporters. You know, like, like there are things that we can do to make it easier on the athletes without removing it entirely or without just telling the players, Oh no, like you can, you know, you can choose when and when and where you want to do media because the media's job is to cover this stuff. And I understand that I am a little biased. I'm someone who works in that field, but I also understand the importance of it. And 
I want Naomi Osaka to do everything in her power um, to, to work on her mental health to get better. And more importantly for the sport of tennis, it's a bad thing for the sport of tennis to not have one of your best players, one of your biggest stars playing. That is really bad for tennis. So I applaud her for this in a sense of she's kind of pushing the hands of the Grand Slam leaders to make adjustments, if nothing else, because mental health is a really, really important part of life. And even though we may look at someone like Naomi Osaka and some people will be frustrated and say, oh, you make all this money, that that argument is ridiculous. The objective should be here that we need to work together, the media, the players, and come up with a solution. You know, when reporters used to be allowed in NFL locker rooms to just walk in in the men, women, anybody, while guys were showering or guys are getting changed. I mean, that's incredibly invasive. That was the way across sports too. So I think there is a middle ground that can be had here and it may be tough to find and it might take some work and it might take some conversations with athletes, but it can't be, I don't think it should be all or nothing. It can be all or nothing. I mean, that could be the outcome of this, but a lot of the, best stories and a lot of the greatest moments that we we hear about in locker rooms we hear about from players and their personal lives which again attribute to popularity attribute to signing endorsements they come from the interactions with the media and i would never disparage mental health i applaud her for taking her mental health as seriously as she does and i hope she comes back on the court soon and in a much healthier state of mind um, but i don't think it needs i don't think it can be a choice, whether I, you know, not doing media or I'm doing media. I think there's a middle ground and I think we just need to find it. I think we just need to find it. And so again, I applaud her for what she did, but at the same time, it, it there has to be that middle ground. There just has to, otherwise we're not going to have sports the way that we've seen it and things change and adapt over time. And I genuinely understand that, but in order for, a sport like women's tennis, who is now losing the equivalent of a Tiger Woods. It's going to be important that there are people like Naomi Osaka to keep that sport growing. And if that's not necessarily important to her and all she wants to do is play or whatever, then, you know, that's her initiative. That's her prerogative. She's allowed to do that. But I think it's not the best decision for the world of tennis and, and for the world of sports in general to completely isolate the media the way that some people are suggesting um a couple other quick stories here before we get into the nba playoffs uh this one's a little funnier and lighthearted. um the oakland a's are in some hot water right now because there were some pictures that got released online um by a twitter account called uh m uh, minor league baseball advocates and the pictures of the food that are being served to the uh, Oakland A's minor leaguers is it is the Firefest food. It, it is literally the sandwich in the styrofoam box with a slice of cheese, lettuce and tomato, no meat. And what looks to be some sort of coleslaw or potato salad. And then next to it is a picture of like a chicken fajita with one tiny little piece of chicken, one sliver of red pepper, one sliver of orange pepper, and like one 
onion little like diced onion cube. So I'm not sure what's going on. Um, the conditions for minor league baseball players for a long, long time has been pretty brutal. Um, if you've ever met somebody or known someone, went to high school with someone who was in minor league baseball, uh, there are some horror stories. I mean, these guys are getting paid like dog shit, like objectively just getting paid terribly. And yet they are busing. They're staying at like motel sixes. Like it's a grind. Like when they say it's, I think baseball is probably the hardest sport to actually make it to the pros. Cause there are so many different levels of minor league baseball you have to go through. And on top of it, you have to perform while living an incredibly unfortunate life. Like, you get to go play the game that you love, and I'm sure those four hours on a baseball field are great. But the second you go home and you're staying in a shitty hotel, and you're now we're seeing these like this is what some players are getting fed at that level, and they're supposed to be high caliber athletes. They're supposed to be guys who are going to go out and and win, you know, become major leaguers one day, and hopefully win World Series. Like that is really tough. And I think we need to do a better job of, and, and honestly, like I've seen some stuff here. I've seen this account before. We need to do a better job, man. We, we really do. Cause this is, this is bad. If, if that's what we're feeding into an already shit situation, um, then we, we need to do a better job. And the Oakland A's just seem to be, they can't catch a break. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, they had a stadium get taken away. They're most likely going to have to leave Oakland in the next couple of years, if not this upcoming year. Um, it's brutal. It's brutal. And to think that that's, you're going through the amount of crap that they have to go through. And then you're getting that served to you for dinner after you just went out and played nine innings. That is brutal, especially after last year when they didn't even have a season, there was no minor league baseball last year. So that that's brutal. Um, and the last thing I want to touch on here, and this was the breaking news I kind of alluded to that came out this morning. The Boston Celtics got swept or didn't get swept, but they got knocked out of the playoffs last night by the Brooklyn Nets. And I'll get into that game here in a little bit, but the Celtics are reshuffling their front office, including Danny Ainge, the longtime GM, former Boston Celtic point guard during the heyday with Larry Bird and Parrish and uh, uh, Kevin McHale. I don't know why I couldn't think of his name right there. Um, and Danny Ainge is going down. He was also the GM when they won the, the NBA title back in 2008. And then we're back in the finals in 2009 when they lost it to Kobe Bryant in the Lakers. So he's been there for a long time. And, to say that he did a bad job, I think, is unfair because they had this stockpile of assets and, and they had it for a long time. And it kind of these picks just kind of kept coming from the Brooklyn Nets trade, which is, again, ironic that Ainge steps down after getting knocked out by the Brooklyn Nets. But when the Nets traded, uh, I think it was like four first round picks and a couple of seconds and just an insane haul to bring in Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett. It was like an outrageous trade, considered one of the worst trades, if not the worst trade in NBA history, right? Because Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce were well past their prime at this point. And now, you know, that trade lived on for years because the first round picks just kept getting pushed back because of certain protections. And, and they traded so many of them that Danny Ainge had this control. And, and look, one of them turned into Jason Tatum. Another one turned into Jalen Brown. So to say that it was an abject failure, again, is unfair. 
but the Celtics have vastly underachieved. And it's not because they don't have two really good star wings. It's from a complete roster management failure from everybody they had around them. I mean, this is a team that's been in the Eastern Conference Finals so many times, like over the last five. I think they've been to the Eastern Conference Finals three times in the last five years, and they were never able to get over the hump. Last year, they lost to the Heat in the bubble, uh, which that Tyler Hero game where he dropped like 39 or 38, and now we've seen like, God, how the hell did that happen? You know, Andre Godala hits five threes in one of those games. It was disappointing to say the least. But the Danny Ainge retirement is not what surprises me about this. The shocking part of this news is that Brad Stevens is now going to be the president of basketball operations and is no longer the head coach. The guy who people were like, how many players would you take before you would want Brad Stevens as your head coach just four or five years ago is no longer coaching. And I think we've, we've started to see this. And, and he honestly, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Theo Epstein. Now, Theo Epstein is not a manager in baseball. He never was. But Theo Epstein is a guy who he stayed in Boston for, I think it was like seven years. He won two World Series, and then he left, and he was on to his next thing. And then he went to the Chicago Cubs, and he was the GM there. And he led the Chicago Cubs to their first World Series. And then after six years, he was done. And now he's working for Major League Baseball. He, he has a belief of not staying in one place too long right? Not getting complacent, always looking for another challenge. And I think we're kind of seeing a little bit of that here with Brad Stevens, where he was an awesome college coach. After what he built at Butler, he could have done, he could have gotten any job in the country that was open in college basketball, but instead he gets to be the head coach of the Boston Celtics. And he goes to the Boston Celtics. He's been there now for, I think this was his eighth year as the head coach of the Celtics. So now he moves on staying with the organization, but he's just running it from the front office and to make, and he's still a young guy. I think he's only in his forties. So for Brad Stevens, it's a really interesting call for a guy that I think many still believe is one of the best coaches in the NBA, but the lack of heart, the lack of effort sometimes at the Celtics team over this past year is a little, I guess, concerning. And so maybe he felt like, you know what? I don't have the grasp on this. Like I thought maybe I, I don't like, coaching NBA players as much as I enjoyed coaching college players, but I know how to run a front office or this is a new challenge that I want to have using my acumen and, and what I've learned. And I'm better at evaluating talent than necessarily getting the best out of talent. And so we're going to see what Brad Stevens can do now as the president of basketball operations for the Boston Celtics. And they're going to start looking for a head coach. And it's really fascinating. Um, another interesting little tidbit here is that Danny Ainge actually did the same thing. Denny Ainge went from being a head coach in Phoenix to then being in the front office in Phoenix in one swift move. Uh, I don't think he jumped all the way up for to, to president of basketball operations, but Brad Stevens, you know, is a bit of a wonder kid, right? He's this guy who we really think highly of in, in, in the basketball world. So um, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Brad Stevens. I think Brad Stevens is one of the best minds that we have here in, in in the NBA and to take him off the sideline into a front office role, it's, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, he's a guy who's always going to have a job, you know, at the end of the day, if he ever wants to get back in the coaching, Indiana will fire whoever they have just to bring in Brad Stevens. But right now he wants to be the president of basketball operations and take over for Danny Ainge. And 
We'll see, you know, look, they have two awesome cornerstone pieces in Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. We saw Jason Tatum put up 50 in a win against the Brooklyn Nets, which right now look borderline unbeatable. <laughs> I mean, I'd be terrified if I was anyone else in the Eastern Conference. As a Sixers fan, I am, uh, but for multiple different reasons. And Danny Ainge, you know, he was largely responsible for getting them there. He got Kyrie there. Kyrie didn't work out. He had those assets. He could have traded Jalen Brown to try to get Anthony Davis. I don't think Anthony Davis was ever intending on signing long-term there. I think he was always going to end up going to LA and now he's out. You know, some of those assets ended up kind of not necessarily going to waste, but they didn't maximize as much of it as they could. Danny Ainge has been there a long time. It's time for relatively fresh blood, at least in the front office. And, and I'm sure Brad Stevens has had his fingerprints all over the front office for the last couple of years, but more importantly, it's his show now. And how he chooses to run that is going to be fascinating because, again, it's a team with a lot of talent, at least at the wing position. You know, they're kind of like the Clippers East. You know, in the, in the Clippers out West, you have Paul George and Kawhi. And then out on the East, you have the two wings and, and Jalen Brown and uh, Jason Tatum. And, you know, if Jalen Brown was in the series, I think they probably win. I, they definitely win at least one. I mean, they won one without him, but they probably win one more. I think this game probably goes six. I mean, Jalen Brown is, is an awesome player. Uh, and, and more importantly, I'm really, really excited to see who they bring in as a head coach because uh, Brad Stevens is, is a great talent evaluator. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how he is as a coach evaluator. And as someone who was coming directly from the sideline out of the front office, my guess is that he would actually have a pretty good pulse on, on, on how that works. So a uh, quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to knock, go through the Eastern Conference, the Western Conference, of the NBA playoffs. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back in a sec. All right, we're back. Uh, Going to break down the Eastern Conference first. And what is shaping up to be a lot more interesting than I think people might have thought going in. Um, mainly because it's still, it's still the big three in the East, right? It's still going to be Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and the Sixers. But there's now a lot of questions, right? It's shifted this... First and foremost, the Embiid injury, right? And, and we'll get to Philly in a minute. But the Milwaukee Bucks just dismantled the Miami Heat. I mean, they swept them. I don't think there was a single game except for the very first one that went to overtime that was even relatively close. And Giannis dropping his first playoff triple-double on Saturday. I mean, they get a lot of time off. Sometimes that can be good. Sometimes that can be bad. Um, but definitely getting a chance to let their guys kind of rest up because it doesn't seem like the first round is going to be over until the weekend. So they're going to get at least a full week's rest and then some before they actually have to play in the second round. But the, the Bucks are a special team, and the addition of Drew Holiday has proven itself to be so incredibly important. And I said this on the last podcast, but it rang even more true as I watched the series because Drew Holiday – does so much for them on both sides of the floor. I mean, his his ability to lock down the other player's best player, the other team's best player, right? He is so he is a top three defender in the NBA. Probably top two if we're talking just on ball defenders. Him and Ben Simmons, I think, are right there. Simmons has a little more length and a little more athleticism and size. But Drew Holiday's still a legitimate six four. You know, it's not like Drew Holiday is like six foot one running around there. You know, uh, and he can shoot it. He can do a bunch of different stuff. He can initiate the offense. But what I love about it is when you have a center like Brooke Lopez who can stretch the floor a little bit, he's kind of fallen back from that year a couple of years ago where he was shooting like 
43% from three, but you can play Giannis and Brooke Lopez together. You're always going to have size in the paint. I think they're going to be a really tough matchup for the Brooklyn Nets. And I'm excited for that series. Like I, I think there's a real chance that the winner of that series ends up winning the title because the, the simple addition of Drew Holiday has become so much more valuable than I think we thought at the time, which was Drew Holiday is a great player. How much is he actually going to give the, the Bucks a chance to win a title? And I think it's increased their odds significantly because of everything he adds on both sides of the floor, the giving another ball handler to Giannis. So that way Giannis can kind of pick and choose his moments when he wants to dominate. And, and you know, Giannis is going to dominate for the first three and a half quarters, but in a nut crutching time, when we're getting down to the end, you know, Giannis isn't necessarily the guy you want with the ball in his hands. As much as I love Giannis and as incredible and dominant as he is, you know, there's always the comparison with Giannis of like early Shaq, you know, Giannis, Shaq, guys can't really shoot, can't really shoot free throws. And you don't really want to give him the ball at the end of a game. And that's why Shaq needed Penny Hardaway. That's why Shaq needed Kobe. That's why Shaq needed D Wade, right? Like you need another guy when you're a big dominant player who can't spread the floor and can't really handle, which Giannis has a decent handle, but it's not like, you know, we're not, we're not talking about like Kyrie or Steph, right? We're not even talking about like a Ben Simmons. Like Simmons has an incredible handle for a guy who's 6'10". Giannis at almost seven feet doesn't have that handle, but he can bring the ball up. He can distribute it. I mean, he had a triple-double just, you know, in, in game four on Saturday afternoon. So I think this is going to end up being a really – really competitive series with the Brooklyn Nets who just knocked off the Celtics in five games. Uh, you know, th th that was last night, I believe. Uh, yeah, it was last night. End up winning 123 to 109. What we've seen from Brooklyn is fucking terrifying. You know, this, this Brooklyn team can put the ball in the basket at any point, And it feels like they can just turn it on, man. Like I've been killing myself trying to find a good analogy for this. And I haven't really been able to come up with one because it's so unprecedented. You know, it's so crazy to see three guys who can just go, all right, yeah, we're going to beat you. You know, it's almost like when you're at like a graduation party or like at a cookout and there's a basketball net and like you might be playing with like your cousins or like, you know, your little cousins, and you kind of like let them win a little bit. And then you're like, all right, no, I'm just going to. I'm just going to dunk on you. You know, I'm just I'm just going to bully you and just just torch the hell out of you. You know, it it feels like they kind of toy with guys like they come in with such supreme confidence between Harden, Kyrie and and KD where it's just like, "Nah, eh, fuck these guys. They're terrible. I don't feel like really playing that hard." And then the game gets kind of close so they get down and it kind of pisses them off and they're like, "All right, fuck this." You know, a, a better analogy would be like playing Xbox with like your little brother, you know. And you're like, you're sitting there and you're playing and they're like, oh, I'm going to, you know, oh, nice. Time. And then all of a sudden he takes the lead and you're like, all right, no, fuck this. I'm, I'm on. It's game time. I'm, I'm going to freaking rip. And when the Nets do that, they're so terrifying, like crazily terrifying. Uh, and again, that's why this series is going to be so interesting because I think Drew Holiday, I think you have to put him on Kyrie because I think, and you know, Middleton's a pretty good defender and he's got, you know, length and, and a little bit of size on James Harden, though James Harden definitely weighs more than, than Chris Middleton. So you can kind of play, you know, Chris Middleton on James Harden, but they're, they're so good defensively. And Coach Bud is a really good defensive coach. And 
the, some of the adjustments that they've made have been huge. You know, you got a guy like Brent Forbes, who's just kind of like a gritty, he can hit open threes, but he's a gritty guy. He'll be able to give help defense. And then the biggest bonus is that if you're going to be playing Brooke Lopez and Giannis together, you can put Giannis on Kevin Durant and, KD is the most effortless score the NBA has probably ever seen. I mean, he puts up 30 in his sleep, and he's done it for now 10 plus 12 years, you know. And But Giannis is a defensive player of the year. He's arguably the most insane physical specimen that we have in the NBA. And if he's going to go hard at Kevin Durant, especially at Kevin Durant, who hasn't played a lot of hoops this year, has been in and out of the lineup, uh, I think the Bucks have a legitimate chance, and I really hope this is like a seven-game series. I hope the Nets don't just go, all right, we're just going to beat you, you know, because I think what we're going to see is, is a team that is all flash in the Brooklyn Nets go up against a team that has been battle-tested, has come up short in the playoffs, has lear- learned and grown together, and now has an X factor in one of the best defensive players in the league to match up against Kyrie Irving, to match up against James Harden. And when all three of those guys are on the court together, there still is only one ball. And that doesn't mean that they're not still going to score a shitload of points. But I think their defense, the, the Nets defense is so bad that the Bucks, even though they're not the most incredible offensive team we've ever seen in the NBA, will be good enough to kind of take them at least in the same ballpark. And then they just got to hope they play a good enough defense against against the Nets to do it. And look, if, if the Nets go in a little lackadaisical, if they go in, you know, a little bit too cute with this, I think it's going to be a series. And I'm not quite ready to say that the Bucs are going to win, but I think it's going to be a series. The other big team in the in the Eastern Conference is the Philadelphia 76ers, who were cruising. I mean, they looked so good in those first three games. And then game four, they're up 12, and then Bede goes down. And... I'm telling you, here in D.C., I could hear the collective air go out of the room, out of the entire city of Philadelphia, because what this guy was doing, shooting like 65% and averaging like 27 points per game and outrageous defense on insane efficiency. Tobias Harris drops 37. Ben Simmons is playing incredible defense and also playing aggressive dishing the ball out. I mean, we talked about it last time. He had the 15 assists, 15 rebound game. And then he comes out and he scores like 26, you know, and, and the free throws, the hack of Ben shit pisses me off to no end. I really hate that. I get why teams do it. And I love the rule that they put in that basically eliminates teams from doing that in the last two minutes of a game, but it's still going to be a problem without Embiid and we don't know right now. It is a positive sign that he's listed as doubtful. I think that tells us that there's nothing too serious going on. Um, and if the Sixers can win tonight on, on Wednesday night, then I think, I think Embiid will hopefully be back for the start of round two, which again, they're most likely going to have to play the Hawks, which I think the Sixers can beat Atlanta without Embiid. But I think that would be like a six or seven game series. If Embiid's playing, I think it's a five-game series, and I think the Sixers walk, especially with the way they were playing going into this. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, the Sixers aren't getting out of the East without Embiid. They're, they're not. They may not even get past Atlanta because Atlanta's looked incredible. And, and on that note, you know, Atlanta is up 3-1 on the Knicks. The Knicks have been a feel-good story. Uh, you know, and a lot of Knicks fans are really down or disappointed, and 
when you look at that roster and what we felt going in to the season, I don't think there's anything to be disappointed about. I, I really don't. I, th- I think it's incredible what we've, what, what we've seen from Thibodeau and what we've seen from the New York Knicks to, to be good enough to host a playoff series after what they've been through in the last 10 years, eight years since Mello left. You know, it's really amazing. And they have a ton of cap room. They shouldn't blow it this offseason. You know, maybe try to bring back Derrick Rose on a reasonable contract. Try to stay competitive again next year. If they have the same season again next year, and let's say it goes seven games in the first round, or they win a first-round series next year, then I don't know. I mean, I look at the Knicks and say, I think the Knicks would be a massive destination. You know, I, I don't know how long. Tibbs has a short shelf life usually in places. You know, people get kind of tired of his shtick. He runs players into the ground. So I don't think Tibbs is the long-term answer, but if he's good enough to bring stars to New York to get the Knicks back, I mean, that's, that's just great for basketball. It, it, it's the, the basketball is better when the Knicks are good. That market, I mean, the disparagement, the, the disparagement between what we've seen in Brooklyn and the support they get compared to what the Knicks have is astounding. It, it's, it's unbelievable. The difference. So uh, I hope the Knicks fans try to take this all with a grain of salt. You know, it's it's tough. I get it. You had a lot of hopes. You thought, oh, we can beat the Hawks. And then Trey Young is basically just turned into to Phoenix, you know, level Steve Nash. You know, he, he's shooting like six, five, no more than five threes a game. He's dishing the ball out. He's been efficient from the floor. He's got that floater. He makes he shoots more floaters and makes more floaters than anyone else in the NBA. And he's getting everybody involved and getting DeAndre Hunter back, who was a sneaky, incredible draft pick from that draft a couple of years ago, has been huge for them. Uh, and, and the bigger one is what we've seen is out of uh, Bogdanovich, which, you know, Bojan Bogdanovich is a really, really great player. And I can't help but think about what if Milwaukee had actually gotten him this summer? What if Milwaukee, what if the Kings hadn't fucked up? What if, what if the Kings just kept them, by the way? I think the Kings might have slowed into the, you know, the, the tail end of that, uh, of the play in tournament. But what a difference he makes for that Atlanta team. And when they're all together between Capella, who was kind of an outcast from the Houston days, and then Kevin Herter coming off the bench, love me some Kevin Herter. Uh, this, this Atlanta team's fun. They're, they're a really fun team. And, I remember watching Trey Young in college and thinking, oh, this dude's this dude's sick. You know, like I, I he was a he was Zion before Zion in recent college basketball memory of like, you have to watch this kid. Like, look where he's pulling up. Look what he's doing for Oklahoma. This is insane. And then he goes to the NBA, and because of the Luca trade and how incredible Luca became, and also the way that he just came in right off the bat. Remember, he had a really, really bad summer league like he was historically bad in the summer league which you're never supposed to put in stock but when the summer league happens like and you're seeing these rookies for the first time the narrative just kind of is created and it's really dumb and we shouldn't care about it but we do like we do care about the summer league and we put stock into it when we shouldn't and he was so bad in that summer league to then look at what luca did immediately and you're just thinking, oh, my God, he's going to be compared to Luca for his entire career. And I think now Luca's become so good 
that people just kind of forget about that trade. And, and the, as further we, we get removed from it, you know, Bill Simmons is forever going to talk about it. There's going to be guys who always talk about it. It's always going to be a part of the story. But if Trey Young becomes this version of Trey Young we're seeing in the playoffs, not the rookie Trey Young who was just jacking up 10 threes a game, it felt like. You know, we're talking about a Trey Young who will dish the ball out, play efficient basketball, find his spots. I mean, that floater is almost impossible to stop. You know, unless you got Boban or Taco or Embiid, you know, a giant seven footer who can, you know, jump 12 feet in the freaking air, it's going to be a really tough shot to stop. And between his ability to shoot the ball, he's an incredible passer, which nobody talks about. It's always the shooting because everyone wanted to compare him to Steph. And the reality is, is he's kind of a blend between Steph and Steve Nash. He's, he's like, if Steve Nash played right now, just an incredible passer, great vision. And, you know, Steve Nash has said this before publicly, like he should have been taking six threes a game when he was in Phoenix. Instead, he was taking about two and a half. So I don't know. I, I just, I really like this Atlanta team and I think they're going to do a really good, I, I think they're going to win. I think they're going to send the Knicks home in New York and maybe New York wins. Maybe New York's got one more fight in them left. I would like to see that for the fans. Uh, and then they're going to have a real test going up against the, the Sixers. And, you know, I think what the Sixers will be able to throw at Trey Young, whether it's Danny Green, whether it's Matisse Thibel, Ben Simmons, whoever they're going to put on him, Trey's going to have a much tougher time. Uh, but if Embiid's healthy, that, that won't be much of a series. I don't think so. Um, so that's kind of where we stand in the East. Philly plays tonight. I believe Atlanta also plays tonight. Yes, uh, 7 o'clock for the Wizards, Sixers, and that's on NBA TV. Then we have Hawks, Knicks on TNT, and then we get some Western Conference games, which we'll get into right after this. And we're back. Uh, last part of the show today, going to be a little shorter on this one. I think Scotty and I are going to go pretty long on our podcast on Friday. So don't worry. I know it's been back-to-back solo pods. And I, and again, I know we've been kind of inconsistent here with some of our taping, but uh, you know, real world, real world stuff gets in the way of it. I, we're trying to track down a schedule. Um, and I think starting next week, we're going to make sure that it is strict. We're going Tuesdays and Fridays that's when you're going to have your podcast. So you can count on that moving forward uh, and got a lot of fun stuff coming up too down the road. We're going to have some guests and some other things. And uh, I actually have a new idea of a potential weekend podcast that I think people might enjoy too, involving uh, people in everyday life and, and just reasons why we, why we love sports. Right. And after the last year and everything we've seen, it, it's so nice to kind of have sports feeling like, back to normal like i even looked up the ticket prices for monday night's game because they were in dc the sixers are playing in dc and i was like ah, maybe i could go to that uh nosebleeds were about 75 bucks i said okay i'm not gonna go to that but it was cool to even click on the tickets button you know and tonight we're gonna see the sixers at wells fargo center at full capacity which is gonna be phenomenal to see uh let's move to the western conference which has been again Really up and down. I mean, every single series has had complete shifts in feeling and tone, uh, in, in, including what we saw last night in the Denver-Portland game, which or, which had that series, it doesn't feel like either one of those teams is going to make a deep run. But both of those teams have put on a show in this series. There's been a couple of lopsided games, but last night I think that game was the game of the tournament. 
uh, the tournament, God, the, the game of the NBA playoffs. Donovan, uh, Donovan Mitchell, Jesus, Jeff, learn to fucking talk. Damian Lillard dropping 55 points in double overtime and hitting, doing what Dame does, right? Just hitting ridiculous shots. I mean, that shot at the end of the first overtime to tie it, to send it into double overtime, dribbling inside the three-point, taking a really, I don't think I've ever seen a step back three like that. I mean, that's something that like Dame has to have done. Like Dame has practiced that exact move in that exact way. And that was the spot he got. And of course, he he banked it in. I don't think he called bank, but he got space. He buried the shot. I mean, his clutch gene is off the charts. Like we need to do studies on him on this guy and figure out what it is that makes him so freaking special. He's so clutch at the end of games. And this Portland team, it's such a shame that Portland has kind of pissed away this dude's career, which again. It's not over. I think Dame's 29, 29-ish, maybe 28. Maybe I'm maybe I'm making him a little too old. But he's in his prime. You know, Damian Lillard is a special player. To come from Weber State as a, as a late-round draft pick, to now be a late first-round draft pick, to now be one of the faces of the NBA for a city like Portland that has – no other sports team. It is the Blazers and nothing else. You know, you think back to like the Bill Walton era. Like that, like you, Clyde Drexler was in between there. But outside of that, I mean, what Dame is doing for this franchise and in a world where guys do what the Brooklyn Nets do, which is I just want to go play for, you know, with my friends. I just want to go dominate. You know, Dame looks at the challenge and says, fuck you. I'm doing it on my own and watch, watch me do it too. With the attitude of as great. I just, I love the guy. I absolutely love him. And it was so disheartening to see how that game ended up going last night because CJ McCollum steps out of bounds in a crucial possession. Robert Covington misses a dunk in the second overtime, a dunk, a wide open dunk. He just missed it. It wasn't even like he was trying to dunk on anybody. And Rocco's got some decent hops, but he's not like a big dunk guy. I was so, so disappointed in how that game ended up ending because I thought for sure we were going to get 10 seconds on the clock, Damian Lillard with the ball with a chance to win it. And we didn't get that. Now, that being said, Jokic on the other side, the MVP for this season, was spectacular, as he always is. Jokic is one of the most special and, and not just special, but unique players that we've ever really seen in the NBA. You know, this guy standing at his height and his size, the way he sees the floor. I mean, he can get to any spot that he wants. I mean, the dude put in 38, 11 and nine last night. He had four blocks. When people think he's a bad defender, he's not a terrible defender. He's a pretty good defender. He knows where he needs to be. His basketball IQ is so high even though he's not the most athletic big man in the league by far, he can still always be in the right position. He can use his size and his length to his advantage, despite the fact that he's not going to go up and posterize blocks. He's not going to be like and be chasing guys down as a center. He just knows where to be at all times. I mean, he had a pass in the corner to Michael Porter Jr. in that second overtime that dropped my jaw. And he could only get there because of his height. You know, he's doing 
completely unprecedented things at his size. Now, yes, Bill Walton was an exceptional passer. Always was, and he'll always pretty much be considered like the best passing big man of all time. But what he did in that, in that play in particular, which was Jokic is standing there. I think he had Robert Covington on him. Maybe it was Nurkic who was you know backed up on him. He gets the double team. He passes over the top of both of them, cross court after faking on an inside cut to find Michael Porter Jr. on the outside. And it was such an incredible pass that it literally, the pass broke the ankles of the defender going to try to chase out to get Michael, Michael Porter Jr. Because the defender started coming, crashing the lane to go with the guy who was cutting. And instead he sees the ball fly over his head and the, and the player just collapsed. Just, I think it, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Norman Powell just drops to the floor because he couldn't, he couldn't hang with it. He couldn't hang with the brilliance of Nikola Jokic. So this series has been a lot of fun. Uh, we're getting a game six coming up. Denver's up three to two. It's going back to Portland. I think we're going to see an incredible game from, from Dame. And I think we're going to see this series go seven games. That, that's my prediction. Uh, and I think the Nuggets win it in seven, as I think how, uh, what we'll see ultimately as the rest of the series plays out. But Talk about an incredible game. I mean, that that was that was awesome. I, I was I was blown away. Um, the other, I think, I guess, top, I can't even say the top because all of the series in the West are so weird, but the one that's gotten the most attention uh, was the Lakers and the Suns, which game one, everyone's talking about Phoenix. Phoenix beats LeBron, beats AD. What a game. And then the Lakers come out, and then they win two in a row. So now you got the Lakers – up 2-1. Chris Paul is playing banged up. Uh, LeBron is playing a little banged up. And then Anthony Davis gets hurt in game four. And that was when the series was got tied 2-2. Two two. I think that was Sunday, Saturday or Sunday that game was, which led us to last night, which was an Anthony Davis, an Anthony Davis list Lakers going up against the Phoenix Suns with a Chris Paul who's starting to look a little more healthy. I mean, Chris Paul played incredible last night and what he does and, and even just from a because look he's not filling up the stat sheet right I mean Chris Paul had nine points six assists four rebounds last night but get this he was a plus 34 when he was on the court and he only played 23 minutes that is so ridiculous and look this game was a blowout the Suns won by 30 they won 115 to 85 so it was a complete blowout but what Chris Paul does to that team from an energy standpoint is truly remarkable. And it's, it's, it's special. It's special. And what he's gotten out of uh, DeAndre Ayton. I mean, DeAndre Ayton has had, before this game, because again, all the starters played, except for Mikael Bridges, all the starters played less than 30 minutes in this game. But what DeAndre Ayton has done, just using his athleticism, playing aggressive, crashing the board. I think he's averaging something like, I want to say it's like 14 rebounds a game in this series. Uh, it's off the charts. So we're seeing Chris Paul invigorate this Suns team in a way that I don't think we thought, I mean, I guess we thought, and this is the thing that we all loved about Phoenix all throughout the regular season. And we saw what happened when he got hurt and how kind of lost the team looked. But Chris Paul is just setting up guys to be successful. I mean, Devin Booker scores 30. He's averaging 30 points a game, um, at least on the home games. 
And Devin Booker's, I don't think he's a superstar, but he's definitely a star in this league. I mean, guy can just put in buckets. 13 to 23, two of six from three. Uh, and yeah, it finishes with 30 points, five assists, seven rebounds in just about 30 minutes of play. So this Suns team is is really, really special. And not to take anything away from them, but not having Anthony Davis in the lineup definitely hurts the Lakers. Hurts them a lot. And what I hated was we saw LeBron last night do the most LeBron crap of all time, which is there's five minutes left in the game. Five minutes left. And LeBron walks off the court with five minutes. Rest of his team's still out there. Rest of the teams are sitting on the bench. LeBron decides he's going to the locker room with five minutes left. And that's the side of LeBron that pisses me the fuck off. Right? He can he takes all of the accolades. He takes all of the uh, deserved, by the way, because he is one of the greatest two players to ever play basketball in the world. He is that special. But the the childish shit that he does drives me up a freaking wall. Like LeBron, what are you doing? Like how how can you how can you on one hand be about the team and want to be that guy? He wants everything. He wants his cake. He wants to, be able to eat it too. He wants to act like a child, but he also wants everyone to revere him as the greatest player of all time. And yes, we've seen teams walk off the court. Right? It was well documented in the Last Dance, the Pistons and Bulls series, where the the bad boy Pistons walk off the court in the last like thirty seconds as the series was ending. That was a 30 seconds left, and they got heat for it. Back then, LeBron walks off the court with five minutes left, not as a team, but by himself. His narcissism is off the fucking charts. And again, I love watching LeBron play basketball. I will cherish the fact that I got to watch one of the best players in the world do it as I was becoming a big NBA fan. But what are you doing, dude? What the hell is that? Would you teach your kid to do that? If one of your other teammates decided to leave, if Kyle Kuzma picked up his gear and just left with five minutes left in the game, LeBron would scold him in the locker room and would say something publicly about it. But when LeBron does it, oh, it's just, you know, I had to, I had to go get some maintenance done on my on my pinky. Sorry. Like, come on, dude. You, you can't be this revered, incredible player and at the, in the same breath, act like a child when you lose. He's such a sore freaking loser. It's like the Tom Brady shit. Like Tom Brady, when he wins, will go shake the other quarterback's hand and be like, hey, it's a great game. You know, it was hard fought. You guys played well. It was tough. And then he loses in the Super Bowl, and what? Nick Foles is running around looking for him. Loses to Chicago there with Tampa last year. Does the same freaking thing. I mean, come on. Like, What is it about these guys who are the best in the world at what they do but are also as immature as a high school kid who is running away and throwing a hissy fit, hissy fit when his team's getting beat up. And yes, LeBron's not 100%, and he's playing really well. I mean, he put in 24 points last night. He went 6 of 10 from 3. I mean, 10 threes from LeBron in a game. Like, you know they were desperate. But that is just so disgustingly immature. It just is. And as much as I want... To defend LeBron at moments, I want to say, you know, it's LeBron James. It's LeBron freaking James. The dude is incredible. This is the stuff that when I see him do this, I just, I can't with him. I can't. And that's why I'm pulling for the Suns. I want the Suns to come out and stomp on their throats in LA and kick them out of the freaking playoffs in the first round. LeBron's never lost in the first round of the playoffs. 
I want to see them lose. I want to see them get destroyed by 30 in LA. Now, is that going to happen? Probably not. The Lakers will probably come out after losing by 30 and will probably win game six and we'll have a game seven in Phoenix. But I, I'm so over the LeBron melodramatics. You know, I'm so over the immaturity. Like, you can't on one page be this profound scholar who reads books and drinks nice wine and is very mature and then also leave the court with five minutes left in the game. What are you doing? Come on, man. Is that, is that being a leader? Of course not. But because he's LeBron James, he can be a leader anyway because every single one of those players grew up watching him. Every single one of those players idolize him, so they'll do whatever he says, which gives him the green light to do whatever the hell he wants, whenever he wants to do it with no repercussions. Because he's LeBron James. And to me, that's not being mature. That's not being one of the best players of all time. It's being a freaking baby. And yeah, maybe I sound a little bit like the old man yelling at clouds right now. But come on, dude. Grow up. That That's that's ridiculous. That's child's play. It's absurd. Um the other L.A. team, we thought were dead and out. They were down 2-0 to the Mavericks, lost two home games in L.A., and then they go to Dallas. They pull out game three. And then they win game four by a lot. I mean, completely dismantled them. Take two at home – or take two on the road in Dallas's house to tie this series up. Now the series is back in L.A.'s favor, going back to L.A. for game five, which will be tonight, 10 o'clock on TNT. The Mavericks are in some trouble because the Mavericks are like when you would go play pickup in high school or in college and there was just one kid there who was going to go play college basketball like a D3 school and you just let him run. You just let him do your thing and you stand in the corner and you hope for an open three and you better make it when you get it. And Luca's got a neck strain, which, you know, look, when you have neck pains, that, that's a tough thing to play through. And it's one thing playing on a, on a banged-up ankle. It's one thing to play up on a sore groin. But when your neck's bothering you, your back's bothering you, those, those affect your entire body. And the thing that is borderline inexcusable, though, is the fact that he is shooting like 41% from the free throw line this series, which I don't know if that would have made a difference in the two losses, maybe in game three, probably not in game four. But Luca is so good and is such a massive part of where the Mavericks go in terms of winning and losing. When he's on, when he's healthy, when he's playing well, the Mavericks are going to win a lot of games. And when he's hurt, when he's banged up, if he's not playing, the Mavericks are in a lot of trouble. And the the Clippers are, are you know obviously a really talented team, but they seem to have figured out a way to slow down Luka in addition to the fact that Luka's banged up. So I think this game is going to be really telling because Luca's come out and said he's feeling better that the neck problem's not as bad as it was. But if they lose this, I have a hard time seeing the Mavericks winning the series. Cause that means they'd have to go back to Dallas, win at home and then go and win a game seven back in LA. The Mavs need to win this. This is a must win game for Dallas. And it's all going to depend on how healthy Luka Doncic is entirely. Uh, the last series in the West is Memphis and Utah. The Jazz looked a little scary in that first game. Now, they didn't have Donovan Mitchell, but the Jazz are a, a good basketball team, a really good basketball team, best record of the, in the NBA basketball team. 
and they have so many guys who can shoot the ball anchored by the best rim protector in the NBA. And then you have an off the, you know, you have a scorer who can just go off at any time in a guy like Donovan Mitchell, who when he's aggressive, but not too aggressive, they're going to be really tough to beat. And my initial pick for them, my initial pick for the, uh, the, the playoffs was Utah and Philly. If Embiid's healthy, the way that they were playing, I still feel relatively comfortable with that pick, especially knowing that the Brooklyn and Milwaukee are going to have a, a knockout, drag out, knockdown, drag out kind of fight in the second round. But if Utah wins this, their road to the title, I think, becomes very realistic because what we've seen from the Clippers is a ton of inconsistency. I mean, they are entirely predicated on being able to shoot the three. And Utah can beat you in a couple different ways, but Utah shoots the three is is the second best three-point shooting team behind the Clippers. So we're talking about a team that can shoot the ball from three as well as the Clippers with better, I think, individual just spot-up shooters. And look, Kawhi is going to match up against Donovan Mitchell, and that would be a ton of fun. And if they end up getting the Mavericks, I think that's an easy win for Utah because what Gobert will be able to do to protect the rim against Luka and the perimeter defense of the Jazz, I think it's going to be really tough for Dallas to beat. And the next thing you know, they're in the Western Conference Finals where they would match up either against the Suns or you know Denver or Portland, which again, I don't think Denver or Portland would get past Phoenix. But if one of them does, I still like Utah to win that game because I think Utah's just a very complete team. And the way they've looked after losing game one since Donovan Mitchell's been back, I mean, those games have been close, and I give a lot of credit to Memphis for, for the grind and the hustle and what they do, but I think Memphis is a uniquely special team in that regard. Uh, I think Phoenix has a little bit of that too, but, you know, if Chris Paul gets hurt, we know what happens to Phoenix. Uh, and if they end up playing the Lakers, you know, who's to say if Anthony Davis or LeBron's going to be healthy for that game? But I think Utah closes the series tonight. That game's going to be on NBA TV, 930. Uh, and, and look, you never know, but this game's in in Utah. They've won three straight after dropping the first game. I think we're going to see the Utah Jazz win tonight and move on to the second round. So we'll, we'll see how it plays out. We'll see how, how it goes. Uh, that's all I got today. Again, another pod will be out on Friday after this week, but will be Tuesday, Friday consistently. Um, you can follow us on social media at rate option pod at Jeff underscore Gimple. And uh, you know, you can follow the boys, Scotty and Vito on, on their various social media as well, but uh, get excited. I, I say it at the end of like every podcast, I feel like, you know, get excited, but this is when shit really starts to heat up. And that second round matchup between Brooklyn and Milwaukee is going to be excellent. So uh, have a wonderful rest of your Wednesday and Thursday. Whenever you're listening to this, I hope you have an incredible day. I hope you had a great Memorial Day weekend. And we will be back here on the Read Option Friday. Uh, so keep it locked in. I'm going to talk to you then. Take it easy, everybody. <laughs>